Jesus. I don't believe Peter was embarrassed years later to, to have that written down. The tradition is that Mark's gospel is actually based on the personal testimony of Peter when, when he was staying in Rome for a while. That, that's a tradition rather, rather than the Bible itself, but it's certainly plausible. And I don't think Peter would have been embarrassed because what he gained after that experience was so valuable because of his relationship with Jesus that it overcame the embarrassment factor. Shall we pray? Lord, I pray that you'd give us the courage to face ourselves when we are wrong, to face the fact that we can be wrong and that we have been wrong and that there are things about us that are wrong before you. Lord, that we would receive the grace and kindness that you have for us in transforming us and giving us a future and a purpose that is worth having. Lord, may we never be held back by the past or even by the present, but press on into the future that you have for us. Amen. I was very struck last week by uh, Richard's talk, and I thought the uh, example of simultaneous equations was a great challenge. Did you get the solutions? If not, well, have a chance afterwards. But the point that, that uh, Richard made with that was that it would have been easy for the teacher to put a problem on the board or whatever on the screen and then tell the students the answer. And everyone would go home happy, now I know the answer. But as I say to my own students at the college where I work, it's not the answer that matters, it's the method. Because the next problem that you face won't have the same answer. But you may be able to use the method or part of it to work your way through. See, the thing is, you have to work through the problem for yourself. Otherwise, the answer doesn't become part of you. And that was true for Peter. There was a problem in his life that he hadn't even realized was there. But it had to come out into the open, and he had to work through it with the influence and help of Jesus so that the answer would become part of him, part of his life in the future. I'm, I'm fascinated by the, the, the structure of the Gospels, by the way the different stories are put to, together and the, the links between them as well as the divisions between them. So I, I was looking at the, the early parts of the chapter, the, 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 the sections that Richard spoke on last week as part of my preparation for this week. And in, in the notes that I made, my preliminary notes, doesn't that sound great, a couple of weeks ago, I, 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 one of my subheadings was get the picture question mark so when Richard said do you get it as one of his headings I thought oh we're definitely on the same the same line here and uh, I was just thinking of those disciples in their little boat with with Jesus crossing the the lake having their conversation about have we got enough bread and all that stuff and I was reminded of the times when they're on that lake and it's a storm and whether it was stormy that, that day, it probably wasn't, but there, there are waves on the surface of the sea and they, they signify problems for the, for the boat to some extent. But in, in, in a real sea journey, there are currents underneath as well. And Jesus was warning his disciples, not just about the waves on the surface of life, but the currents that were pulling them in different directions in the society in which they lived. The currents of thought and belief and behavior and values. And he speaks about that in, in the early part of the chapter. The disciples were affected by these currents. 
And we too live in a society, in a world that has all kinds of cross currents pulling us in different directions, telling us what life is really about, about what it would be good to have or to be or to do or the right way to speak or the fun things to own or the great films to watch or whatever it is. And behind these currents are all kinds of influences. Paul says we're fighting a war. Ephesians 6 verse verse 12, we're, we're at war. Not with people, but with spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Peter and the other disciples were human beings just like you and me. They grew up in a culture that they learned from. They were affected by all sorts of influences. There were things that they thought and things that they could not even begin to think at that time. And it affected their whole view of life. And the problem that we'll see is that behind all these different currents and influences are spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. How weird it would be if a sincere, well-meaning Christian became the mouthpiece of Satan. Could that happen to me? Could that happen to you? Well, in the story, it happens to Peter. Because the influences that have been affecting his uh, way of life were more than just human currents of thought and life and belief. They were an expression of something from Satan. I always get the serious passages, don't I really? But that's, that's a great thing. Yeah, the roots of the problem. And it's, it's, it's kind of weird really because Peter has a, a great high point of faith. Remember the story about the blind man that Jesus heals just before this little section where Jesus has the healing in two stages. And in the middle stage, the man says, well, yeah, I can see, I can see people, but they look like trees moving about. He couldn't see clearly. And then Jesus spits on the guy's eyes. That may not seem very attractive to us, but that... That could symbolise an insult, but it could also symbolise medicine because saliva was was thought to have healing properties. And after that, the guy can see clearly. And it's just like that with the disciples. They've been under the influence of Jesus, learning from him, seeing him, and they were learning who he was, where he had come from, what his ministry was about. So when Jesus says... Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? He's saying to them, what do you see? And Peter confidently says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. I better check what Mark's version actually says. You are the Christ, is all that Mark has. Well, that's, that's all that we need. And that's kind of a high point. They've, they've come to this point of faith that Jesus is the one who's been promised The one who's come as God's special messenger, bringing about God's rule in the world. And again, as Richard said last week, you you might might think that uh, they, they would want to speak about that at that time. But Jesus straight away says, don't tell anyone. And that seems very, very odd. But it's not odd. Because although they used the word Christ, they didn't really know what it what it meant. They only knew part of what it meant. And if they'd been speaking about the coming of the Messiah to to others, preaching it, they would have ended up preaching things that weren't the complete truth and that actually hid the truth 
from the very people that Jesus wanted to reach. And there's another warning to us. It's possible to be a, a, a sincere religious person, but to be putting out a message that brings people towards God to a point and then puts a barrier there that stops them getting any further. And that was one of Jesus' criticisms of the Pharisees, that they put a kind of a fence around the kingdom of God and they wouldn't let anybody into it. And religion can be like that sometimes. Well, the rebuke was uh, read, read to us by, by Alison. And Jesus begins to tell the disciples about his coming passion, the passion of Easter, as we call it, when he would suffer and die for the sins of the world. Not only can they not accept this, but they really think it's wrong. And, and Peter takes Jesus to one side, and he's quite sincere, and he's quite sure about, uh, about what he's saying. Uh, it seems quite reasonable to him, but he rebukes Jesus. There's the first rebuke. He rebukes Jesus. And it's just interesting to see the state of mind that Peter is in. He cannot accept the idea that God's promised Messiah is going to be rejected. That he's going to suffer and die. It's shameful. Now just as a, as a, as a by the by, did you know that in Islamic tradition, Jesus did not die on the cross? And I think that's sort of the uh, official Islamic view, that it would be shameful for a prophet of God to allow, uh, for God to allow one of his prophets to be murdered in that way, as a public spectacle. And they can't accept that. And Peter was in exactly the same mind, and we can un understand why. Why would God want that for his beloved son? For the... Uh, Muslims, Jesus isn't, isn't God's beloved son, but he's a beloved prophet, one, one of the great prophets in, in their belief. God wouldn't allow that to happen to him. And yet Peter has to get beyond that in order to meet the Christ that God had sent into the world. And so Jesus rebukes Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. You're setting your, your mind on man's interest, the things of man and not the things of God. You're thinking in human terms without putting God into the picture, without having God at the centre of the picture. And it's interesting because Jesus addresses that comment to Satan. He doesn't say, get behind me, Peter. You're thinking in human terms, not putting God at the centre. He says, get behind me, Satan. And the words that Peter spoke out of his own thoughts, out of his own understanding, out of his own conviction, were the words that Satan was speaking to Jesus. Peter was acting as Satan's spokesperson at that point in time. It sounds horrendous, doesn't it, really? But with all these good intentions, God can't possibly want this for you, Lord. That can't be right. The Messiah is a victorious figure. The Bible says so. Now, you must be wrong here. Actually, the Bible presents a two-sided picture of God's coming king, a victorious king and a suffering servant. And Jesus knew that you couldn't have one without the other. They're both in, in our reading, actually, 
because the last verse that was read to us was about him coming in glory with the angels of God. That's something more than just being a suffering servant. We can't have one without the other. And Jesus knew that. Peter didn't. And at that point, Jesus speaks to Satan. But in doing so, Peter is aware that he's being rebuked as well because he's acted as the spokesperson of Satan. But that's a terrible thing, actually, that Peter, that great Christian leader to be and leader in the making amongst the other disciples, is speaking to his Lord the words of Satan. And there's a warning there for every one of us that we can think things with great sincerity, even with a religious background of ideas, and be giving the devil an opportunity to work in our lives and keeping our Lord at arm's length. Jesus deals with the problem by getting it out into the open. And he does that, I want to suggest, uh, because of his love for Peter. Now, Simon's title for today's talk was The Loving Rebuke of God. And the, the rebuke that Jesus gives to, to Peter may not sound very loving because it's very, very straight. It's addressed to the true source of Peter's ideas, Satan himself. And the context, however, the, the fact that Jesus is in an ongoing relationship with Peter is the thing that, that makes it loving. So just before the event, uh, Jesus has spoken to, to the disciples and Peter's made this statement of faith. After the event, Jesus begins to speak to them more fully about what it means to be his follower. He wants Peter to move from there to there. And this has to come in the middle. Now, as I said earlier, I'm quite interested in, in the structure of the uh, Gospels. I'm, I'm not a great expert. I'm, not, you know, I'm an armchair tinkerer with these things, really. But um, the, the Greek New Testament, about which you will know much more than I do, is, is uh, I believe, divided into paragraphs. And some of those paragraph divisions are quite, are quite big. So I was looking at a little uh, Greek, Greek Testament a while ago, and uh, it has a number of paragraph breaks in, in the original, or the original versions that we have, to which our, our English version, it kind of reflects that to some extent. Though we should keep in mind that the chapters and verses, and even some of the English paragraphs, don't reflect the structure of the Greek version. However, there's one very, there are several uh, big paragraphs. I'm sorry, I'm, uh, I'm not doing this very well today, but I, I will do my best with it. There are a number of uh, quite big paragraph breaks in Mark's Gospel where the uh, Greek text that I saw has a complete blank line. So it's writing, 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 and then a complete blank section and then it starts again. And that happens between verses 26 and 27 of the, the chapter. There, there are, I don't know, half a dozen or ten maybe such big paragraph breaks in Mark's Gospel. And this, this is one of them. And it's signalling to us that there's a change of gear going on. Although what we're going to read is connected to all that came before it and flows out of it, there's something extra going to happen here that wasn't happening before. And this, this event at Caesarea Philippi, when, when Jesus gets the disciples to say what they believe so far, and then follows that up by telling them about the things that they haven't understood so far, is crucial. 
because their discipleship, their following of him, moves up a gear from this point onwards. And it challenges me, really, that the disciples have been with Jesus for, for a while. They'd, they'd heard him uh, preach, and they, they'd actually been involved with him in public ministry, for example, feeding the 5,000. And they were still learning about him and still learning about themselves, to the things within them that were not compatible with his will for them. And I believe that journey of discipleship was something that they were uh, engaged in for the rest of their lives, as it is for us. And Jesus goes on to challenge his hearers with this thought about losing life. So here it is. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. And perhaps Peter thought that Jesus was throwing his life away by talking about suffering. Perhaps he would have felt a failure for following a Messiah who died on a cross. Perhaps they still had some of those thoughts and feelings when the event actually happened and they had to work through them again then. But Jesus is saying to Peter and us that unless we let go of what life seems to be, we won't ever get hold of what it really is. We won't ever become the person that we were really meant to be. The person that I really am is not the stuttering idiot that I appear to be at times. It's meant to be someone who is with Christ, who loves him, not somebody who, to be honest, worries more about what's going to happen at work than probably anything else about my life in the last 20 years. But that's not my life, I know that. Not somebody who was involved in uh, different relationships as a teenager and a 20-something person that were not godly relationships and that leave a mark of confusion and you know, a hole in life Years afterwards, not that God can't work with that, God, God can fill every vacuum, can't he, really? Uh, but that's not the real me. That's part of my journey to the real me that becomes fulfilled when I let Christ into that situation. And I put it before him, and I say, what do you want to do with it, Lord? This whole question of what is my real life, who, who am I? What is my life really about? What really matters? These are the vital questions that I believe we all have to address and keep addressing all through our lives. They say that you know, people are kind of open to this sort of question when they're kind of in their teens or, or university, then they kind of close off for the next 20, 30, 40 years. And then when they're an older person, possibly facing the possibility of death, they might become open to them again. Let's be open to them all the time. Let's be... Asking ourselves and asking God, who am I? Who am I really? Why am I here? What is my life for? I believe God wants to give us a sense of purpose that is appropriate to every situation. That's what Jesus modelled and that's what Jesus spoke to his disciples about. Taking up your cross and following me every day. Being willing to die to yourself, to the world, to opportunity, to ambition to family even, if that's necessary, in order to fulfill my purpose. 
Jesus had a sense of purpose that was big enough for every situation that he faced. It's quite natural that when we face difficulties, we, we will feel overwhelmed by them. And certain of life's experiences are bigger than we are and will be turned into turmoil by them, at least temporarily. And they may well leave a scar or a hole or a wound that's like a mark that's in a way visible on the inside for the rest of our lives. But God wants us to engage with him and to find his purpose in those situations. And the purpose that Jesus offers to us is to be his disciple, to follow him, to know him and to proclaim him, to be his witness, to be his hands and feet. He was calling his disciples to be his workers in the world, his not-so-secret agents of his very secret kingdom that was so secret because nobody could understand what it was. Let's just end with those words of Jesus to the disciples. What can a man give in exchange for his soul? Nothing. If I lose who I really am, I've got nothing left to buy it back. Shall we just pray again for a moment? Lord, I pray that you would release us from those... <coughs> chains that tie us down, those habits of mind and of heart that prevent us from seeing the future that you have for us, that prevent us from responding to you fully as you really are. Lord, deliver us from those desires that are like an undertow for a boat, drawing it in the wrong direction towards a dangerous bank. Help us to steer a course by the direction of your Holy Spirit that will lead us closer and closer to you. May our lives be full of your light. And as your light reveals the, the damage and the debris of our own decisions, of our own uh, friends and family's decisions and actions in the past, that you would enable us to turn all these things over to you, that we might be not the mouthpiece of Satan, but the mouthpiece of our heavenly Lord. Amen.